I will read the place of scripture that is written in Matthew chapter 5, verses 45 and 48. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Called to perfection. This promised commandment was written in the book of Matthew and is presented to us in the series of sermons from a pastor Akadi. It is the inheritance of saints of all time and generations, and this commandment is addressed by Christ to his disciples. And therefore, those who do not acknowledge the authority of the person sent by God have no relation whatsoever to the inheritance of this commandment. And with regard to the fulfillment of this commandment, again, I'll remind you that the commandment sounds like this. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a commanding commandment. He doesn't offer us. He commands us. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's why, with the fulfillment of this commandment, we will look at one of the purposes of the righteousness of God in the heart of a person that gives God the basis to give us the promise, not through the law, but through righteousness by faith, just as he had given it to Abraham and his seed. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of peace was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of faith, again, Abraham and his seed were made heirs of peace, not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, not through the law of works, but again, through righteousness of faith. Righteousness of faith is defined by the obedience of our faith to the faith of God that is presented in the gospel word of the messengers of God at the head of with the person who presents for us the fatherhood of God. So, righteousness of faith is the obedience of our faith to the faith of God. But pastors offers us, um, allows us to look at faith and to look at the anatomy of this obedience. It's very unique. Faith is supposed to be comprised of two components, faith that hears and faith that sees. And so, if the faith of the heart occurs from hearing the word of God, then the affirmation of the faith of the heart occurs only from the seen action of the Lord in ourselves, in signs, in miracles. To believe, or through faith, means to look at the promise of God in our life. For example, from the life of Christ and the life of the nobleman who believed the word of Jesus that his son was healthy. He believed this word. This was just the word. Your son lives, and he believed this word. And as soon as he heard from his servants the very next day that the fever had left his son at that hour at which Jesus said, Go, your son is healthy, or your son lives, he was affirmed in his faith, and he had believed in Jesus himself as well as him and his whole household. So first, he believed the heard word, the listened word from Jesus, and then he saw with his eyes that which Jesus had said. But Jesus said, your son shall live, or your son shall be healthy. And he knew that that which Jesus said, he did not speak in the gift, in the a format of a gift, but the format of a fruit. He knew Jesus enough that uh, Jesus offers words only in the format of fruit. Take a look. When he then met his servants the next day, because he had accepted healing for his son, and he then went home. 
The very next day, the servants ran up to meet him. And what did he ask them? He asked them, When did my son become better? They said, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever had left him. He didn't ask them, When did my son receive full healing? He said, When did my son heal? When was my son healed? They said, Yesterday at seven o'clock. And it was at that hour that Jesus said, Your son lives. So Christ had placed on his account health, but this health had to be taken from this account. And he knew that this was a process. It's not a gift, it's the fruit. That's why he had to demonstrate for Christ the obedience first, hearing the listened, hearing the heard word, and then he begins to see with the eyes, with his eyes, results. That's how we must accept the Word of God, and that's how we must see the results in our life. And we see, oftentimes we see saints say, you know, in this situation, before I could have been bitter or resentful, but today it's unique. I have complete calmness. I am not, I do not hold bitterness. I do not have resentment, and this is very good. That's how the Word of God affirms us, that the Word of God is true and faithful and it works. It's very important to hear the Word and to see the small result in our lives. If we don't see the result, in our life, then the word or faith cannot be accepted by us as a fruit. We will always look at the gift, not the fruit. Fruit must hear. Fruit must see through faith. And these kind of eyes that can see, first of all, obviously, the invisible sphere and then certain result in, results in the visible sphere, these kind of eyes, as Pastor had said, the mind of a person that can either be opened to look upon the invisible word of faith or closed and able to look upon only what is visible. As it is written, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, and who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-4. through four. And then let's quickly define what blind eyes are and what eyes that can see the invisible promise are. So blind eyes is our carnal nature that is expressed in trust and our rational abilities. Blind eyes are also a, reb a rebel heart and a uh, house of rebels. Blind eyes is a lack of meekness. It is... Uh, our decision to depend on wine and alcohol or drinking it for satisfaction. And our blind eyes are also us looking upon worthless things and our inability to see spiritual beauty. Whereas eyes that are able to look upon the invisible are those eyes that we need in faith. We need ears that believe and we need eyes that believe so that we can see the result. Because if faith cannot see, it cannot be affirmed. It cannot affirm any of the promises in our life. And therefore, eyes that can see, the invisible, is our spiritual maturity that is expressed in the refusal to be based off our rational abilities. These eyes are also our voluntary and rational obedience to the word of the person whom God has sent before us. And eyes that can see is our independence on material values that are expressed in money for which they are gained. What do we do? Sometimes blindness is left. You know, a person is born again. A person is blind. But then he comes to a spiritual level and his blindness leaves him. But what do I do? I'm a Christian for so long, so many years. I'm in the church. I should be spiritual because I speak in tongues. But I'm blind. I'm bitter there where I shouldn't be bitter. I hold resentment there where I shouldn't hold resentment. And I don't see the results of faith in my life. We need eye ointment in this case. This is 
Um, this is despicable when a person is in the church for so long and he is blind. Eye ointment is what we need. Eye ointment that makes our the eyes of our heart able to see is holiness. This ointment is holiness. And should be taken by a person who is blind. We need holiness. Holiness without which no one can see God. And as, as it is written in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. Holiness is expressed in hatred. And I want to, I'm saying this to everyone who wants to see who says, I don't see any of the results of my life. Well, take a look what holiness is. Holiness expresses itself in hatred toward the cares of lawlessness and um, those people who we should not talk to or we should run away from as if they're, as, as they're evil and bad company. We should separate our relationship with these people whom we have contact with and then I will begin to see. And abiding in this holiness is abiding in the truth of the teaching about blessings and curses that gives us the ability to distinguish good from evil and the ability to refuse good and to, excuse me, to refuse evil and choose good. And the place from the position of which we must uh, conduct sanctification is the Church of Jesus Christ. He has anointed. He had anointed the eyes of the blind, and he said, "Go to the bath of Shiloam." A pastor said in his sermon that the bath of Shiloam is translated to "sent," meaning go to the one whom ha- who was sent. Because a church that does not have somebody who has been sent by God, there cannot be healing in this church. Healing occurs in the bath of Siloam. Siloam means sent from God or sent by God. And he went. He went to the bath of Siloam where with the word of God he began to wash his eyes and he began to see. And of course the purpose of our sanctification is of course the adoption of our body with the redemption of Christ that is called to become a guarantee of our meeting with the Lord in the air when he comes to be glorified in the saints of his in the day, in the coming day. We see that our faith it has very interesting components. It comes from hearing, but it is affirmed through vision, through seeing. But to see, we need to, as we heard, to not be focused on our intellectual abilities. Whether or not we have many or not, doesn't matter. We should not, uh, we should not be based off them. And a lot of times, people do rely on their minds. And those who, um, it might seem like they have a high intellect, they're very careful with their intellect. They try to hide their intellect or they try to... Uh, the fooler, the, the more foolish the person, uh, the more he says, I don't believe this, I have my own own opinion, I have my own head. It means that he does not have... A, he has a very low intellect. The sign by which we should judge of our partaking to the sons of peace, because we began uh, to at first talk about how we can be with Abraham, heirs of peace, and we have come to talk about the righteousness of faith, and we talked about what faith is. Faith sees, faith hears, and this allows us to call it the righteousness of faith. Not just justification of faith, but righteousness of faith as well. Justification from faith is transformed into righteousness of faith. Hearing produces seeing. And the sign by which we should define our partaking to the sons of peace is by the ability to clothe our essence into the holy or the selective love of God. We're beginning, we're continuing to talk about holiness. The holy selective love of God is that which allows the blind to see. Holy selective love of God. Colossians chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. But above all these things put on love which is the bond of perfection and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you are called in one body and be thankful. 
According to these words, the rule of the peace of God in our hearts is possible only under one condition, when the selective love of God abides in our hearts, and we will be clothed in the selective love of God. The character of the selective love of God is presented by the Holy Spirit in Scripture in the light of seven unearthly virtues. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2-8, through 8, and we will list them. This is virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And we have already talked about virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, and we're going to talk about godliness. And let's remember how uh, the Holy Selective Love of God manifests itself in a virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, and so forth. So the Selective Love of God expressed in the seven earthly dignity unearthly virtues, has nothing in nature, uh, nothing in common with tolerant love that is filled with selfishness, blemish, and inconsistency. And apart from tolerant and the selfish love of man, the selective love of God in the seven virtues differs in that it is given the zeal of God. It contains the zeal of God. It contains omnipotence and His absolute wisdom that cannot be used for selfish and ignorant purpose, the selfish and ignorant purposes, purposes of man. Whereas tolerant love can easily be used for selfish goals. That's how the pages, this is how the pages of scripture define the strength of God's love. Songs of Solomon chapter 8 verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for, a, for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly destroyed. Songs chapter 8 verses 6 through 7. The level of the strength of God's love is defined and acknowledged by the level of God's love toward the righteous who practice good and hatred toward evil and those who practice evil. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Only by loving that, what God loves, and despising that, which God hates, we can demonstrate the perfection of God and His reaction toward the righteous who practice good and the, un and, the and the wicked people who practice lawlessness. For the selective love of God, according to its nature in the format of seven virtues, is called to lead us to the fullness of the measure of Christ, or to the perfection that is inherent to our Heavenly Father so that we can shine with the light of our sun on the just and on the unjust and pour out our rains according to the guidelines of God on the just and on the unjust, on the unjust for punishment. With this, it is specifically the power of the selected love of God in the format of seven earthly virtues that is called to destroy the power of death in our body and replace it with the reign of the resurrection of Christ in our bodies and clothe our bodies into the resurrection of Christ in the face of our new man. So that promise that that lays at the door of our hope, it is taken from the selective love of God. And let's quickly look at virtue, knowledge, self-control, and patience, and then we're going to talk about godliness. So, the love of God is poured out out of virtue. So, it pours out of the virtue of the Heavenly Father Himself, out of the Christ, the Holy Spirit, who produced the atmosphere of God's love. The selected love of God is poured out in our hearts through hearing the Word of God, of the person, set, person sent to us by God. So, this word flows into the good soil, should flow into the good soil of our heart, and all of these substances are good before God. 
And so knowledge, the knowledge of the love of God in us, the second quality in this ladder of Peter by which we ascend on, knowledge gives us knowledge of what God views as good and what he views as evil. And a third, a third step, self-control, allows us to choose what God views as good and reject what God views as evil. As it is written, Isaiah 7.15, Curse and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. The fourth step of the ladder, patience. Patience that flows in gladness is the patience of Christ that according to its state as well as its characteristics has no analogs toward the earthly state and definition of patience. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Patience that flows in all gladness with joy in the selective love of God is founded or based on the supernatural ability to see our inheritance or our calling in God with the eyes of God and it's the ability of Christ to await with hope the fulfillment of what we have seen. So here the patience of Christ shows us the beautiful anatomy of faith. Faith hears and faith then sees. It sees the goals of God with the eyes of God. And now, let us move on to the next virtue of love that is expressed in godliness. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-5. through five. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness... This is not just a teaching, or this is not just point a, a point, it's a teaching. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy. From such withdraw yourself. The teaching of godliness and the selective love of God opposes those who are proud, it opposes envy and strife and so forth. In scripture, the discipline of godliness and the selective love of God is presented as a foundation of the evangelic faith teaching that is tied to the mystery of God. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. These words could be spoken by Apostle Paul, Apostle, Apostle who was given um, the mantle of a father. This is not one. This is not spoken by one who waters, but one who plants. In place of Scripture, there are places for which the apostles had reserved and had kept their author authorship. And we need to know these words. It's very dangerous when we enter the danger zone, and when we look at every place of Scripture and distort it. Because if I read this place of scripture, and Brother reads this, Brother Akadi reads this place of scripture, and there will be a completely different atmosphere. He, this, when he speaks it from him, will be good. If I say this and I distort this, it will be a great evil. And so, without controversy, we must again, without controversy. Take the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And specifically, through the expression of the fruit of godliness, 
that God's love agape is called to be identified in the heart of a person. In scripture, the meaning contained in the dignity godliness highlights the correct relationships between saints and God that are tied to one another with a mutual bind or mutual covenant. And the essence of the selective love of God and godliness is expressed in mutual obligations between God and man that are highlighted by God in a mutual covenant of peace with God. And with this factor, we needed to answer four classic questions that Brother Arkady has offered us. First, what characteristics does Scripture endow godliness of God and godliness of man? Second, what purpose is godliness called to fill in the relationship of God with man and man with God? Third, what conditions or what price must we pay to cooperate our godliness with the godliness of God? And fourth, by which results should we define that our godliness truly cooperates with the godliness of God? Uh, on Sundays, Brother Akadi is studying the fourth question, but we are going to go back to the third question today, and in the future, we will conclude it. It will take a few services for us to conclude it, about two or three, and then we're going to move on to the fourth one. We're going very quickly, and... You can run as far away from me as you like. I'll catch up to you. I run very quickly. And so, the third question. What conditions are necessary to fill or what price must be paid to cooperate for our godliness to cooperate with the godliness of God or how do we turn upon ourselves the favor of God? First, in order to turn the favor of God and the selective love of God upon ourselves, it is necessary with deep humility before God. We need to have this humility that is expressed in acknowledging and confessing our sins. So, the price, what price do we have to pay for our godliness to cooperate with the godliness of God? When we're talking about God's godliness, we see the words such as good, godly favor when my uh, godliness is expressed to God I expressed words like thanksgiving to God holiness to God and he in turn answers me with his godliness and so to turn the godliness of God upon ourselves in the selective love of God we need deep humility that is expressed in confessing our sins considering that the favor of God or the godliness of God is the result of the mercy of God and an answer to the prayer in which a person acknowledges and confesses his sins, we will turn our prayer to Manasseh, the king of Judah. Um, what's interesting is that this prayer is comprised of the fact that he does not consider himself a sinner, although he had sinned. Because God does not listen to sinners because the anger of God abides upon them and they are the sons and vessels of his all-consuming wrath. This is seen from the words of Manasseh who says, merciful is his covenant. And in this prayer, he prays for godliness. He prays for godliness after he had sinned. Manasseh had sinned before God. His heart con still contained the promise of godliness. He still contained the godly promises. He did not leave his assembly. This promise of godliness that contains the mercy of God, the mercy of the God of his fathers. 
Manasseh had prayed for his sins to be let go. And he, he spoke to God saying, Lord, you are God, the God of those who repent. Of course, after this kind of prayer, God can forgive a person. I don't put myself in the role or position of God. He is a lot more good. And if I, being an evil person, would forgive this person who speaks these words, how much more merciful is God? He said, Do you not think that I can forgive? We need to correctly pray to God. Manasseh calls God the God of those who repent. That's why when we come to God, we say, Lord, you are the God of those who repent. Repentance itself is the gift of God. Let us listen again. Repentance is the gift of God that is given only to those who have the promise of godliness in their hearts. Scripture says about these people, for a righteous may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. So, a righteous may fall, the wicked fall away. When the wicked fall away, they fall away from the assembly. When a person leaves church, this is very dangerous. There's a chance one out of a million, he may return, but... When he is thrown out as well, excommunicated, and he doesn't repent, that is bad. Second, to turn the favor of God upon ourselves, we need to accept the approach that is allowed by God in our lives. This is one of the prices that we have to pay. Second Samuel chapter 16, verses 5-13, to 13, I will uh, read selectively. Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. We see here that David prayed when um, his, when Abasalom had stood against him and tried to kill him. And he began to run away. And when he ran away, um, somebody had begun to curse. One of the descendants of Saul had begun to curse him. And he had spoken these words. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went through stones at him and kicked up dust. The key phrase could be, the Lord will look upon my affliction, points to the fact that affliction that is allowed into our lives by God is a unique opportunity to demonstrate humility before God in order to gain His favor. Each time when we refuse to spread gossip, excuse me, each time uh, we do spread gossip, we lose the ability to gain the godliness of God. Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 10, but 29, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom. Third, to turn the favor of God upon ourselves in the selective love of God is necessary to serve the saints in the name of the Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
What are the conditions of inheriting the promises of hope that are an expression of the goodness of God? Is the service of saints, a service to saints with a gift that we have received? We serve one another with certain gifts. Why? So that we can have full assurance of hope. We are saved in hope. And in order to affirm this hope, we serve one another. Sometimes we hear phrases like, Oh, this person has helped me, and now this person will end up in heaven. Well, he helped me, and I am a child of, of a king. Scripture says that in Scripture, when we help one another, uh, we do this when we can have full assurance of hope. A person must have faith. He must have hope. He must be well informed of it, and when he does ministry toward other sa to other saints, he does so in order to affirm his full assurance of hope until the end. That's why, if I've been helped and my uncle has given me five thousand, and I said, "Uncle, we're going to meet each other in heaven," no, this is not so. If he doesn't accept Christ, he won't end up in heaven just for doing good deeds. To help one another and serve one another is, again, to make perfect our full assurance of hope. Furthermore, to turn the godliness of God upon ourselves in the selected love of God is necessary to show our hope, faithfulness, and stability when standing and when keeping charge of the tabernacle of testimony. Again, this is keeping charge of our heart. Numbers chapter 1, verse 53. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of testimony, that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel. And the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of testimony. To keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony is to keep watch of our heart in which Rim and Thumim abide. So a person, a Levite, who is separated for God is a person who cares for his heart. Furthermore, to turn the godliness of God upon ourselves in the selective love of God, it is necessary to stand in the gap for the vessels of mercy and to release judgment on the vessels of wrath. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. If we refuse to bless the righteous when he is going to be reproached, and if we do not unleash wrath again on the heads of the lawless, we will share in the fate of the lawless people. 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 42. Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. Furthermore, again, we're continuing to talk about the price. The price where we receive godliness from God, or the price where our God, the godliness of God meets with our godliness, and the godliness of God is transformed into uh, goodness in relation to us and favor in relation to us. But we must, on our end, do something, and that's the next price. The next price. Let's read about it. The next price that we must pay on our end to turn the godliness of God upon ourselves, it is necessary to not shake in the promise of God with his belief, but to be firm in faith, giving glory to God, knowing fully well that he is strong to fulfill what he has promised. 
who, contrary to hope and hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations. Again, this is two formats of faith, to hear the word of God and then to see the word of God with our open eyes. Without which, uh, without this, we cannot believe in hope that was affirmed by God. That's why to Abraham he said, "Go and look at the sky, look number the stars. This is how many promises you have. This is how many children, descendants you shall have. Look at the sand, look at the grain of sand." Why did God tell him to look? Because faith is not not just hears; faith must also see. And he, of course, will see his inheritance. But first, we must see this inheritance in certain formats, in stars and sand. And then we will see the real promises in our life. First, these are stars. First, these is grain of sand. Then it will be reality. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced, God knew and he knew that what he had promised he was able to perform. As a rule, the time for entering into the promise of eternal life that is called to uh, resurrect or raise up in our life the power of righteousness, it's when all of our human abilities will be completely diminished and we will come to absolutely nothing with their own physical abilities. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and I will, and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered and said, Write the vision and make it plain on the tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. By the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. It will tarry. It will surely come. Though it tarries, wait for it. This man asked, uh, the nobleman asked, when did he become better? Was it yesterday? They said yes, in the seventh hour. Again, though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So we see here that it was necessary to wait here. Just as Abraham had waited and believed, and he had long-suffering, he knew it may tarry. Why will it tarry? As is written here, it will tarry so that we can first write it clearly on the tablets of our heart so that he who reads can easily read it and so that all of our human abilities and resources are completely used up and we come to absolutely nothing. We will say, it's nothing if we say to God, I've, I've memorized everything. I memorized the teaching every place of scripture. I can say, I can learn any promise by memory. I can repeat it. He says, no. This is the assault in this is not so that you memorize it, but it's so that all of your human energies, all your human things, the human things you rely on can come to nothing and you rely on God. When, If we, with our human resources, come to nothing and the promise is still in our heart, then that means that we are looking upon the promise of God. It's so that the reader who can read it it's interesting in the English translation it says write this promise write the vision so that he may run who reads it in another translation it says call him so that he can read it so he can read it for you 
And the English Bible says, write it so that so that it could be clearly read. That's why we must write it in a way. Why do you think I read this so easily, these notes of Pastor? Because Pastor was able to write it. He has abilities um, to write it and to pass along this revelation in a way where we can understand it. This isn't my labor. This is the labor of a person who, before it was here on this paper, and before I can easily read it, because this isn't my labor, because it were given by a person who completely understands what he speaks about. I don't, I'm just, I copy, paste, and print all of these notes. They say, Daniel, do you spend a long time? Do you spend a long time uh, making these notes? I say no. I before I read the notes before two weeks before I read the notes, read them, put them down. Then for two weeks I walk around and um, I think about it, meditate, and then right before service I take them again, reread it, and then I'm ready. I read it and then I meditate upon it and I can see these images. To turn the favor of God upon ourselves, it is necessary to make the decision to go into the field and glean the heads of grain of after him in whose sight we may find favor. Ruth chapter 2 verses 2 through 9. So Ruth the uh, Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said, Listen, daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from there, but stay close by my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. We gather, we go to the vessels and drink from these same wells. Ruth is referring to a person who has demonstrated friendship toward the God of Israel because the name Ruth means showing favor or showing friendliness, friendship. She is friendly. The name Boaz is viewed as the mind of Christ because the name Boaz means he who has a sharp mind. The field of Boaz is viewed as a church of Christ who proclaims the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh in order to to find the kingdom of heaven as a foundation. So we proclaim the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. Why? Because in the flesh. Why? Because in our body, the resurrection of Christ must be raised up. And that teaching does not have the promise about the reign of the resurrection of Christ in our spirit, soul, and body. It is not the teaching of Christ. And the gleans of head that Ruth had gathered is the revelation of the Holy Spirit that is called to raise up in the body of Ruth the power of eternal, of eternal life in the face of Boaz. The phrase Boaz 
let in your eyes be that field and which they reap and go after them means go along the footsteps of the sheep by this with this path we can come to the uh, power of life in our bodies you might say how many images are in scripture can you from the New Testament read me a place of scripture I will read it let us all buckle our seatbelts Hebrews chapter 10 verses 25 to 31 the field of Boaz have you buckled your seatbelts not foreseeing the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more you see the day approaching for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the son of God underfoot counter the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing in insult to the spirit of grace for we know him who said vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord and again the Lord will judge his people it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God you see let us look to the images people say well, show me examples we always constantly talk about examples images here we see the field of Boaz and those people who trample this field will be destroyed he, Boaz said let this field be in your eyes Apostle Paul said the same similar thing furthermore to turn the godliness of God upon ourselves in the selective love of God it is necessary to turn and search for the Lord our God and David our King and revere before God with his goodness Hosea 3, 4 through 5. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, so ephod and teraphim, three minorim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. To remain for a king many days without a sacrifice, a sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim, which is referring to the breastplate of judgment, means for many days to be under the authority of reigning sin in the face of our old man, over which stand the organized powers of darkness. And now, what does it mean to turn to the Lord our God, and what does it mean to look for David our king? To turn to the Lord our God means, first and foremost, to restore with him a relationship that was that was destructed by sin through worship that coincides with the requirements of the will of God. So when we correctly worship, which coincides the requirements of the will of God, we can restore relationship. And how do we do this? When we bring tithes into his storehouse or tithes into his home. And how do we search for David, our king? This means to place our carnal mind dependent on the spirit of our mind, which is the mind of Christ in our spirit or the teaching of Jesus Christ in our heart. Furthermore, again, we're going to continue to talk about the price. The price or the godliness of God can um, be an answer to us for our godliness. To turn upon ourselves the godliness of God and the selective love of God is necessary to not leave mercy and truth. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. The phrase, mercy and truth, let not mercy and truth forsake you, refers to the manifestation of mercy and truth toward our neighbors. It is through this mercy 
hypocrisy demonstrated in the boundaries of truth toward one another in the body of Christ, that the blood of Jesus Christ receives the legal ability and opportunity to cleanse us from all sin. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. The thing is, is that by demonstrating mercy toward one another in the boundaries of the truth of the Word of God, we, in doing so, give the Holy Spirit the legal right to abide in our heart and fill our heart with the peace of God. If we do not demonstrate the mercy toward one another in the boundaries of the truth of the written Word of God, we will um, we will be isolated from communication with one another and communication with God. So without mercy, that must be in truth and righteousness toward one another, we isolate ourselves from communication with saints or communication with God. The next phrase, bind this mercy and this truth around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, means the neck is referring to the will of a person, thanks to which a person can receive and make the conscious decision that coincides with the will of the Father. The, word, the verb bind, bind these truths around your neck, mercy and truth, the verb bind, People might say, it's very hard for me to have mercy and forgive others. But we must bind mercy and truth around our neck. And bind has a few unique interpretations in Scripture. To, again, this is telling us how do we bind mercy and truth on our neck. This is to tie our corrupt will to make it dependent on the spirit of our mind, as well as to make our will, turn our will into slave of righteousness and free it from slavery to sin over which stands the old man. This is how we can bind and wear this beautiful scarf of mercy and truth. And to write these truths on the tablets of our heart um, can be done in the sphere of our conscience. And to write this mercy onto our tablets, it is necessary to be freed, for our will to be freed from, um, from sin. We must free it, and then we can write it on the tablets of our heart to bind it. And the verb to write in Hebrew means to imprint, to engrave, to write, and to establish a law for ourselves. First, we bind neck, we bind mercy and truth around our neck. Then we can write on the tablets of our heart. We must first um, submit our will. We need, the, we need the scarf of mercy and truth. And to wear the scarf, we must bow down our necks, submit our wills. We may think that we have it, but until we truly have mercy and truth around our neck, it will never be in our heart. Furthermore, to turn the godliness of God upon ourselves and the selective love of God is necessary through the truth that abides in our heart to turn upon ourselves the mercy of God in His godliness. Psalms 85, verse 11 through 14. Mercy and truth shall meet. Okay, that's Psalms 85, verses 11 through 14. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Mercy, 
truth shall spring out of the earth when we are able to bow our Heavenly Father, worship our Heavenly Father in spirit and truth. The spirit and truth that abides in our heart in the commanding teaching of Christ. And then, in an answer to our prayer that meets the requirements of truth that comes from our heart, the mercy of God shall look down from heaven. As a result of truth meeting with righteousness, God will turn upon our land His godliness or His goodness. So, out of my heart, I grow this truth worship and spirit and truth in the rank of or the limits of scripture and then God gives mercy in the format of righteousness if the, those two shall kiss together have meet together and righteousness have kissed we will receive the promise so mercy and truth shall meet righteousness and peace shall kiss and then we will receive this great promise furthermore to turn the godliness of God upon ourselves and the selective love of God, it is necessary to grow in knowledge of God. First, Samuel chapter 2, verse 26. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. From these words, it follows that the level of the godliness of God toward man depends on the level of man's spiritual maturity. Again, I will repeat, the level of God's godliness toward us depends on the level of our spiritual maturity. This level of spiritual maturity depends on the level of our knowledge of the essence of God and His goals expressed in His will. Whereas, the level of knowledge depends on the level of our worship to the gospel word of people who are presented or who are placed in the body of Christ so that we can grow ourselves into the full measure of the stature of Christ. So, godliness comes when a person has, when a person uh, comes to the full measure, finds favor in the eyes of God, and this spiritual maturity is tied to acknowledgement of God. And acknowledgement of God, how does God verify if we have acknowledged Him? Through knowledge of the truth. And knowledge of truth is defined by our relationship toward the gospel word of God. According to our tremble and our thirst, we can have many knowledges. We can have very well-informed people people can, that can speak for hours. Let's remember that spiritual maturity or spiritual growth refer, uh, re comes from knowledge. And knowledge of God comes from our relationship toward the Word of God. That's why when a person wants to speak with someone, tr verify, does he have trouble before the Word of God? And he does he acknowledge the person whom God has established in his life? Let us talk about the next price. To turn upon ourselves the godliness of God and the selective love of God, it is necessary to be good in the eyes of God or to meet the requirements of the creation of God that is created in Christ Jesus for good works, for which God, which God has called us to fulfill. So, for us to transform the godliness of God into His goodness and favor to us, we must be good and we must be familiar with the good works of God that we must practice as well. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 2. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. We must be very careful and very attentive in defining what is good and what is evil or evil works. Because one and the same work or one and the same action in the eyes of God could either be good or evil. And consequently, one and the same action 
done by different people can either call out the godliness or the favor of God or it could cause his anger. Everything will depend on who is the inspirator of this action. Will it be our flesh over which stand, stands the old man with his works or will it be the Holy Spirit? And that's why good and evil first and foremost is defined according to its origin and only there, then according to its fruit. It's interesting. If you have pens, please write this. Good and evil is first of all defined by its origin and only then by its fruit. Matthew chapter 7 verses 18 through 20. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And so according to scripture, good contains uh, the following synonyms. It is the goodness of God, the redemption of God, mercy of God, salvation of God, protection of God, holiness of God, wisdom of God, perfection of God, work of God, beauty of God, the uh, strength of God, the omnipotence of God, the justice of God, and the truth of God. This is what good is. And we must know again and again that outside of God and independent of God, good does not exist. All that is done outside of God and not inspired by God is evil. And that's why let's define what is evil. Oh, excuse me. Let's define what a good person is. A good person is cleansed from dead works, who flourishes in God, who is fragrant in God, who abides in the truth of the word, who is uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, who is led by the Holy Spirit, who is made dependent on the truth and the Holy Spirit, who is prepared to represent the entrance of the Most High, and who is in, who contains or who is in the likeness of God. This is what a good person is. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His creation, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, we are made to do what? So that we can do good works. Do good works. Again, we're talking about good. We've defined what good is. And now we're going to define what the good works are of this good person. Good works are words, thoughts, and actions that come from a good heart that is cleansed uh, in its conscience from dead works that are practiced or that are conducted in the boundaries of holiness because the fulfillment of these actions occurs according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. And so let us quickly look at what evil is. Evil that resists the will of God. But, um, and let's remember this in Egypt. We're going to re uh, be reminded of Sunday's sermon. The evil that was uh, in the Egyptian land, that was in the Egyptian Nile River, that was on the throne. They didn't know about the evil that was on their fields. They didn't know the evil that was in their furnaces. They didn't know about the evil in their light. They didn't know about the evil because all of it was covered by a form, uh, form of godliness. But when the Word of God came that was purified and refined in the fire of God, the sword of God, he had unveiled the true essence of Egypt and Egypt came to horror what was hidden in Egypt and so let us take a look at what evil is and the place of the resistance of the will of God and let's take a look at what the staff of God, our proclamations the truth, what they must reveal in Egypt in the Egypt of our uncrucified soul let us look at what the staff of Moses had revealed. Uh, it's very interesting what Pastor had done, uh, had written in his notes, and I have shortened a lot of it so we can have time to cover it. The first evil that the will of God revealed 
was the throne room, the throne of Egypt, right there on his throne. That was the first evil that God despised. But no one knew everything was covered with a format of godliness. Pharaoh symbolized the mind of a carnal person, which is guided by, which guides all carnal people. So a carnal person is based on his rational thinking. Uh, but when when the time of infancy ended and man did not pay the price for leaving infancy his priorities shifted and he began to see himself as, as spiritual while being carnal and therefore he began to resist the descendants of Joseph began to again resist Joseph, descendants of Joseph's spiritual people the sorcerers or the staffs of these sorcerers the rods of these sorcerers symbolize the power of resistance of the wicked people and the power of their wicked thinking with which we have to meet and overcome with the power of the rod of God so how dangerous it is to be in a carnal nature but the rod of God must reveal this carnal nature the second evil in the place for the resistance of the will of God that the rod of Moses our proclamations had revealed was the water of the Nile River the great Nile River this was great evil and no one knew how much horror was in that Nile River the Nile River in this case which for the Egyptians was a deity symbolizes the unclean spirit who's, who uh, the next evil the third place of resistance to the will of God that was uncovered were the frogs and the waters of this Egypt who had represented a demonic spirit and they had also represented false teachings false prophecies and scripture says in the book of revelations and uh, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet these are evil spirits the next place of resistance to the will of God that was uncovered by Moses was the dust of the earth in scripture the earth in relation to a person symbolic represents the soil in his heart now let's look at the soil of the heart of the Egyptians those carnal people who have not come out of infancy their lice their dust produced lice and this represents negative and frightening thoughts, phobias and fears, fears about the futures. P people, when people think that we need to run away to Canada, to the wilderness and so forth, people are left in infancy. And Moses strikes with his rod and in this land of Egypt, the dust rises and the lice that comes from it, lice, these frightening thoughts that um, that frightened the carnal people. The next evil or place of resistance to the will of God that was uncovered by the rod of Moses were the swarms of flies produced by the river Egypt. The swarms of flies symbolized demons led by the demonic prince Belzebub. So Belzebub, as we know, is the god of flies. This is what devil had called himself, the deity of flies. Belzebub. These swarms of flies looked in the mirror. They saw Belzebub. The name Belzebub written on a wall, and a fly written illustrates him. Egyptians believed that it was from this deity that their health and their mature, uh, material prosperity depended. 
Usually when swarms of flies surrounded people, people began very sick. When people are very um, worried about their health, about their beautiful figure, about their beautiful you know, beautiful face. You know, I know it's necessary to um, be physically active, but when swarms of flies begin to bite us and we become dependent on this, this is not good. When a person are too fo are focused only, only focused on their figures, their bodies, or material prosperity. Yes, physical activity is needed, but so it's not our top priority. And I had said this, and I see that you're all sitting calmly. That means that there don't exist, uh, there don't exist saints who are frightened by swarms of flies. I looked at your reaction. I see that you're sitting calmly, meaning you're not scared of flies. The next place of resistance to the will of God that was uncovered by the rod of Moses were the beasts of the land of Egypt. The beasts of the land of Egypt. The beasts. From this, it follows that the cattle of the Egyptians symbolized hope in their rational capabilities and hope in the performance of their religious rituals and rites. So, um, they had cattle for their own worship. You know the difference between worship and praise? <laughs> worship, people say, worship, people say, when you sway to the left and to the right, and praise is when you jump up and down, some people say. Are, are we in a bar or something? This isn't true worship and praise. The next evil in the place of the resistance of the will of God that was uncovered by the rod of Moses is defined as the fire of the Egyptian furnace. Ashes from the furnace of Egypt symbolized the result of the false fire that was the life energy force of Egypt. So, in these carnal synagogues of Satan, there is this fire. And if there is this fire, there is these ashes. And when Moses had come and said, is this your fire? They said, yep, this is our furnace. He had taken the ashes and he said, look, look at your worship. And he threw it out. And all the Egyptians, they began to itch a lot. And he said, this is what your worship will bring you to. If the ashes of a burnt offering cleansed and consecrated a person in Israel, the ashes from the furnace of Egypt infected and caused purulent abscesses on their bodies. That's why they jump around. That's why they um, sway about. Because somebody had thrown out this, had thrown this ash from the furnace. Now these people need to do something to try and feel saved, like they have salvation. Because at this point, they have abscesses, and a person feels... Um, the next evil, the place of the resistance of the will of God that was uncovered by the rod of Moses, or our lips, was the field of Egypt. A field is a place where there's no shelter. The people and livestock in the field are Christians, Christian churches, and movements that are independent or not recognizing the delegated authority of God over them. Saints who do not recognize the authority of God's delegated authority over themselves are in the refuge of lies, which are doomed to destruction and perdition. And we know that hail had fallen, and Moses had warned them. Well, tomorrow is going to be judgment. Let no one be in the field. He was merciful toward Egypt. He warned them, and they said, You're not, you can't scare us. To go away from the fields? He said, Please leave. Tomorrow there will be a strong hail and fire, and all who will be on the field will be destroyed by God. 
because you went on the field without being under the protection of God. And all of Egypt, who was on the field at that time, all the, all the people, everything was destroyed. The next evil in the place of resistance to the will of God that the Rod of Moses had uncovered were were the locusts. Hope in what is earthly was deposed by the locusts brought by the east wind brought to the land of the Egypt by the rod of God. The east wind is a judgment and action of the Holy Spirit which reveals the wrath of God because instead of placing his trust in God, man began to say, began to lay his hope on prosperity. The next evil in the place for the resistance of the will of God that was uncovered by the rod of Moses was the false light, the end of the false light. So, God had shown Egypt, look what you call light. Tangible was tangible darkness. False or the tangible darkness is the image and atmosphere of literal darkness which in the future has no time to embrace all who follow the direction of the false light of intelligent human genius. Let us read it again. What is tangible darkness? Very important to know. People say, I have light. I'm a light to the world. I'm a light to the world. People say, friends, your light is tangible darkness. Tangible darkness is the image and atmosphere of literal darkness, which in the future has no time to embrace all who followed in the direction of this false light. This tangible darkness will embrace has no time to embrace all who follow in the direction of this false light. The next evil, or the place of resistance to the will of God that was uncovered by the rod of Moses, were the firstborn of Egypt. It's very important to note this one. From, I, didn't, I never, never saw this from this perspective, but let's keep looking at it. The firstborn of Egypt. The firstborn of Egypt is the power, glory, and sworn thing of Egypt, which the people of Israel were under a curse, as it was called a tithe, or belonged to God. The Egyptians represent carnal Christianity who act toward tithes as their belonging and who use it as they wish. So Egypts say, however much I wish, where I want and when I want, I will give tithes. Scripture says, okay, well this is an Egyptian. The firstborn of Egypt, firstborn, first fruit, tithe, what is best. And Israel had... Um, they knew where to bring, how to bring it, how to correctly bring it, and what state of the heart to bring it, what must be spoken, how to praise God. This was full worship in the offering of tithes, but the Egyptians said, however much I want, where I want, how I want, and when I want. That's why they were destroyed. Our time has come to a conclusion. I have only a few more pages of scripture, and these uh, last few pages of scripture, again, we all agree to move very quickly, and so we will study them next time. Sometimes when you run and run and run, God says, I see that you are uh, running, growing short of breath. You don't want to become short of breath, so you want to you wanna sit down, drink some water, rest, and then continue. Let us pray. May you be blessed in your prayers. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege to be in this place that your hand has outlined for the worship of your holy name. We thank you that you allow us to 
reach unreachable heights and to break all evil and sin that binds us upon these heights. We thank you that today we can take these words into our lips and from the position of Gibal, Ibal and Gerizim, we can proclaim blessing and curses. We pray, Lord, that all premature death, illnesses, in the name of Jesus Christ, we curse and we destroy the action of all fears, phobias, dependencies, all ignorance, in the name of Jesus Christ. May all of this be cursed, and may it depart from your holy people. And we ask you, Lord, to stand on the place of your rest, you and the ark of your greatness, and your mercy saints be clothed in your salvation. We thank you that you give us from your Holy Spirit. And we ask you to uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit, to fill us with the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit, the atmosphere of the kingdom of heaven, and allow us to find your holy face in this atmosphere of the kingdom of heaven. We thank you that the service is in your divine arms. And we ask you in the name of Jesus Christ to continue to lead it with your uplifted and magnified hand. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you that today, upon this place, you demonstrate for us your godliness and your goodness. We thank you that today, the truth that grows from our heart, that raises from our heart, can be met with your righteousness. It can be met with your mercy. We ask you, Lord, to allow us this truth that we have heard today, to accept it, and to make it the achievement of our heart, so that it could bring fruit. We thank you, Lord, for all of those promises that you give us. We hear them and we accept them and allow us today to take these promises and to see them with the eyes of faith. If we are blind, we ask you to deliver us from the spiritual blindness. Anoint our eyes with your eye anointment, the anointment of holiness, and allow us to be rid of tolerance. Allow us to be rid of a friendship with those people who uphold the wicked and the lawless people. Allow us, Lord, to demonstrate our holiness as the first step to us seeing, after which you will allow us to see your beauty, your heights, and your promises. We thank you that today your truth can be affirmed from this place. We thank you that today we can see the results of your word in action. We thank you, Lord, for these results. We thank you that you have redeemed us in Jesus Christ. We have received justification as a gift of grace through redemption in Christ. We thank you that we are redeemed and that we are justified and that you have allowed us to be called righteous before your face. You have allowed us to call you our Heavenly Father. You have allowed us, Lord, to not be um, strangers, but you have allowed us to be yours, to be saints. You have allowed us to be delivered from all blemish, to have saints with one another in the love of God, agape. We thank you, Lord, that today we have bound our next with your mercy. And this has allowed you to write the words of mercy in our heart. That's why, Lord, we thank you that you are the God of those who repent. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of those who repent. And we dem will demonstrate the power of your name from this holy place, that you are the God of those who repent. And in our heart, there is no, um, there is no doubt you rid us of this because today we have decided to bow down our backs to bow down our backs and to bind our necks with your mercy and truth allow us to demonstrate your mercy and truth in the boundaries of your truth we do not want to be 
We want to demonstrate mercy as Christ had demonstrated. We will demonstrate mercy for the vessels of mercy. We will demonstrate your judgment and your wrath for the vessels of condemnation. May your inheritance be blessed. May your inheritance and your saints be blessed. Those who, when they fall, they can get right back up and they can be found in the church. And we thank you, Lord, that you cleanse the church from those who fall away from it, who challenge you, who challenge your truths, who challenge the blood of the covenant, of whom you said, it is impossible to renew them with repentance because a person who could receive salvation only in the church, how can one repent when the church was left by him, when he slandered the church, when he spit on it, when he trampled on it. There's no way for him to go and repent. We ask you, Lord, today to demonstrate and reveal your righteousness, for you to allow us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to practice good works. Allow us, Lord, to recognize that we can we might do good works in our eyes but they come from our carnal nature and we need to be rid of this this carnal nature is spiritual blindness allow us to be separated from it and allow us to be clothed in your holy unearthly love of god with which we can serve one another and demonstrate your judgment we ask you lord for your anger today to be ignited and we through the proclamation of our lips through our staff we can destroy Egypt we proclaim for ourselves that we refuse to be based on every human intellect we are not based on our intellectual abilities but we are based on your word your truth that you offer only in the order of order, order of God and we destroy your Egypt and we place our thinking dependent on the gospel word of those people who represent for us the fatherhood of God on earth we thank you Lord that today you have allowed us to hit the Nile River and destroy the evil spirit who took upon the form of the Holy Spirit upon himself and you have made us dependent on the Holy, true Holy Spirit and allowed us to gain the Holy Spirit as the Lord and ruler of our life but this is, did not occur until your word and your lips did not uh, judge this demonic spirit we rely on the Holy Spirit we thank you Lord that today we condemn all those frogs all those false teachings signs and wonders that this false spirit produces we are not based on science wonders miracles we are based and founded on the truth of your word and dependence on the Holy Spirit we thank you Lord that we see in the great miracles and signs in those changes in our essence that affirms our faith day after day we thank you that today we can we can we ask for you to fear your inheritance today from all phobias and fears of the future phobias that we won't be saved phobias that we are unable to take the promise that this is not for us in the name of Jesus Christ we are clothed in the powers of God and with the rod of our lips we strike the earth 
We thank you, Lord, that in the land of Geshen, they were not there. We thank you that today in our spirit, there is no, this is not there, but in our soul, that is Egypt, we are delivered. We condemn all that fears and phobias and doubt cause. We are freed from all of these swarms of flies, these frightening thoughts. We are freed from from the care from when our relationship toward our body becomes idolatry when our strive toward uh, strive toward money begins to rule over us this our deliverance from this is great mercy and today we await for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our bodies and according to scripture we correctly act toward our bodies we prepare them for being clothed in your resurrection we thank you they have redeemed our spirit you change our soul in the face of our renewed thinking and you finally will clothe our body into the resurrection of Christ and we prepare our body to accepting the power of the resurrection of Christ we thank you Lord that today we challenge every false fire we are based only on your revelation. We do not want our fire to trans be transformed into eternal darkness. Allow us to be delivered from darkness that we call carnal light. Allow us to be rejoiced in what you find joy in. Allow us to not be curious and that which you do not find curious. Allow us to see the difference between fire in the tents of Israel, of God's chosen remnant, and fire in the tents of Egypt. Allow us, Lord, to despise this higher fire and to challenge it. We thank you that amid your divine fire, we are not phobias. We thank you for that righteousness that we have received as a gift of grace in Christ Jesus and that has made us righteous. That tells us to be holy. We thank you for your great light. May the anger of God come upon all the firstborn of Egypt, from Pharaoh to slave. All the firstborns of Egypt, may they be condemned. Allow us to search for you today, to turn to you, and to search for you like we hear about it in the Gospel Word. Allow us to not serve you as we think is correct. We thank you that you teach us from this place, from this pulpit. You teach us how to worship in spirit and truth, and that's why we ask you, Lord, to fill your lamp, for you to fill your man of God who stands before your countenance and who sends the word into our hearts and who offers us the revelation that becomes accessible to us. We thank you, Lord, to fill his heart with those revelations and to fill his words with those words that can reach our hearts and so that we who read, could read this promise in our hearts.
so that you, Lord, can hear us when we turn to you with these promises and we can gain, we can gain goodness before your holy countenance. We thank you, Lord, for this great mercy. And may the spirit of wisdom, counsel, guidance abide upon this messenger of God. We see him as a gift of God from you, as a gift from you. We ask you that he be your true lamp. We will accept that light, that truth, that holiness, that eye ointment that you offer us. Because in certain spheres, you have, you want us to exit out of certain spheres, but some we were remain in certain spheres because we have blindness and we have our own understanding how we should leave out of this curse. Allow this eye ointment to be a part of every sphere and allow us allow this eye ointment to show us how to exit from that pit, from that dependency and from that sin that troubles us. Each of us is in need in your eye ointment in a certain sphere of our life. And we come to this place to find your eye ointment. And we find it. May your holy name be blessed in this holy place. Our almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the hand of the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us conclude with our unchanging manifestation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.